We're reading this week in chapter 2. We're going to start off with the first 13 verses. Uh, This is the word of the Lord. This is what he wrote for us. Uh, Starting in verse 1, it says, Say to your brothers, you are my people. And to your sisters, you have received mercy. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. That she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore, she who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will hedge up her, up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but, she, but shall not find them. They, then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me than, uh, than, than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste to her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you for bringing us back. I thank you for keeping us one more week. Holy Spirit, you're invited in this place. Uh, May I not say a single word that does not come out of your inspiration, out of your holy word. Lord, um, illuminate the words off of these pages for us. Speak to our hearts. Speak to all of us in exactly the places that we come here today. We love you. We serve you. And uh, we ask for your presence. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Feel free to take a seat. All right. So, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Pedro. Once again, happy Mother's Day to my mom, to the mother of my children, to all of you, to all of your moms. This is a cherished day. A day to remember, a day to set aside, to just give special attention to moms who are fundamental to everything. Um, so yeah, happy Mother's Day. 
Last week, like we said, we started a new sermon series on Hosea, which we've creatively called Hosea. And uh, we're looking into the book, this minor prophet, not minor in message, but just minor in length, uh, of Hosea's ministry, his prophetic ministry. For 25 years, this book is a collection of 25 years worth of Hosea's uh, teachings, his poems, what he did, a collection of his story. And so this is not like something that happened overnight, but something that God worked on and through Hosea throughout his prophetic ministry. And what he did, last week we covered chapters 1 and 3, which covered the story, the prophetic parallel that God set up in Hosea's life. Uh, Every prophet gave God every inch of their lives. And so Hosea would have given God permission to do anything in his life if we're tempted in the reading of Hosea to be like, oh man, like God, well you should have done it another way, or gosh, maybe like tried another way that's less personal, right? Uh, I don't think Hosea would have ever said this, because Hosea was one of God's special Old Testament prophets who gave God every centimeter, every second of his life, God, use it all so that I can know you and tell the world about you, so that I can know you and tell power, speak to power here on earth about what you're like and what you're saying to us in our, in our day. Right? And in Hosea's lifetime, there were a, a couple, a handful of Old Testament prophets at the same time ministering. It was a special time in Israel's history, which I just find really fascinating. And so in Hosea's life and in his marriage, God is setting up this prophetic parallel. We talked about it last week, but just to recap it, or for anyone who wasn't here last week, you can find the, the sermon on our YouTube page on our website. Uh, I would suggest that you go read it because the story is... Uh, crazy and also beautiful, Um, but God tells Hosea to go and find a wife, to go and find a wife who would most likely choose to be unfaithful. And he told Hosea to go and find this wife and to also have kids with her. It wasn't just about them two. It was go start a family with this person, with this wife of yours. Because for 650 years, God had brought his people into the promised land And for 650 years, his bride, Israel, couldn't do the one thing that they promised him they would do over and over and over again, which was be faithful to him. For 650 years, just in the promised land, right, after the wandering, after their slavery in Egypt, after God called Abraham and and the early patriarchs, right, for 650 years in the land, God has been telling them, do one thing, be faithful to me. Don't run to other gods. Don't trust other kings. Don't trust other armies. Rely on me. I'm your husband. And for 650 years, they couldn't. Because we don't. Because we're all like Gomer, his wife. We wander. And we're prone to do that. And we walk away and find lovers in all different places. Uh, In Hosea's life, they start having, in their marriage, they start having kids. And God uses those kids' names to speak judgment over his people, right? Imagine walking around the street, and your first name is Jezreel, his first son. Jezreel was this valley. Uh, Specifically, Jezreel means God sows, which we'll talk about later. But it was synonymous with this valley where corrupt kings were killed, and there was destruction. Kingdoms were ended there, right? God is saying, I'm going to walk away from this arrangement. I'm going to destroy all of this. What if I did that? Their second kid was a daughter, and her name was No Mercy. 
What happens when God has no more mercy with his wayward wife, right? Uh, us. Back then, Israel, but now us. What happens when his, he just has no more mercy? What happens when there's no more mercy for us to find? What happens when we uh, expect mercy all the time and it stops coming? And then interestingly enough, it says that when no mercy was weaned, when no mercy was past the age of breastfeeding, right, a sign of maturity, a sign of development, when our sin really grabs hold, when there is no more mercy and we're still entertaining all the things that we know we shouldn't be, the third kid comes along, and his name is the most shocking yet. It's not my people, right? The one thing that we would never imagine God to say to Israel, his special people, was, you're not mine. I'm not yours anymore. You're not the one tribe, the one people that I've chosen on this earth to tell the world about me, right? What happens when God's special chosen people lose the one thing that made them special, God himself? What happens when we come back from loving our lovers and God's not home anymore because he's gone, because he's let us get what we've wanted all along, our other lovers? And so Hosea is this beautifully deep story about the heart of God's uh, long-suffering husband nature chasing after the world, all of us, the church, his bride, making us beautiful because he is the one who makes us beautiful, and we leave the house all the time. We find other lovers all the time. What happens when God chases us time and time again? And so today, we, last week, we looked at chapters 1 and 3 that told the story. Hosea marries her in chapter 1. They enter into this marriage vow, and she breaks it. And then chapter 3 is Hosea going back after her, right? God told her, if Hosea is supposed to represent what God does in the face of our unfaithfulness, chapter 3 is he comes after us again in our mess. Before we've ever repented, he comes after us and he buys us back. Right, uh, Hosea goes back to her lovers, and her lovers don't actually love her because false lovers and idols never do, because they never offer the real thing, and Hosea has to go and buy his wife back. He spends money to bring his wife back to him, and he speaks love after her, and he redeems her, brings them the home. And then in chapter 2, sandwiched in between the story is this chapter where God takes this step back and he's not just speaking to this one couple, he's not just speaking to Israel in this day, but he speaks to our human nature. And he says he does three things in the face of our wandering, in the face of us looking for love in all the wrong places, in the face of us going after our false lovers, God promises that he can do three things. Thing number one is that God knows how to free us from our false lovers, from our idols. He knows how to bring us real freedom. The second thing he teaches us here is that God teaches us real love. What real love really is and how to really let it touch us. Because I find that one of the scariest things to do in the world is to trust something that's really genuine. Because I am way more used to filth than I am his holiness, 
his perfect love. I, I in myself always return to what's dirty rather than to the better, more perfect love of God. And then the last thing is that he promises us a real future, a real future, a covenant that will last forever with the one who really loves us. And so in this week, I've been processing, Hosea has been incredible. Like, I, I feel the Lord in a different way in this season, and I've just been asking myself questions after questions. Really, the sermon notes, I could put about 500 questions there a week because Coming up with the questions is the easy part. I've been asking myself questions of like, oh my God, when I'm like really stuck, when I really feel detached from his goodness, are his promises still there or are they too good to be true? Like, are they too good for me to be true? Are they too good? Like, they might be true for everyone else, but I think, I feel like they're too good for me to hold on to. Uh, I've been working on this sermon series with Paul, Paul up there. Uh, he's been processing this with me for a while now. And one of the things that he keeps on tell, telling me and has been really helpful is that he's giving me this picture of like, uh, when we choose our other lovers, we're choosing what's less. We're choosing the lesser thing. Instead of going to the buffet, I'm just content with a little plate of scrubs, right? Will we choose our good lover? Do I choose the better lover? Can I contain all this promise or will it like make me just explode? Is he too, like he's too good. These things seem to be too good to be true, but he promises them over his church, over his people for all time. Am I going to one day come to the end of God's grace? Will I ruin all of this equation? Will I get to the point where he's like, Pedro, I have grace for everyone else, but no more for you. I thank God that that's not true. And then I also think about the tension that we need to wrestle through this together. Uh, and I want to speak today, like every week, hopefully, but I want to speak to those in the room who are Christians and those who don't call themselves Christians, who are still exploring. And I have all of these questions for us to continue to consider. It's like, why do I need to put away my other lovers? Why, why is God the better lover? Why are my idols not good enough? I think I benefit from them. I think I get something out of this equation. Why is God the best one we could choose? How, uh, another question, how, like, how dare God require something of me for me to go to him? Who, what gives him the right to tell me to stop doing things? He should just deal with it, all right? I've got another question. Is he really worth it? Is he worth me turning my back on the whole world? Will choosing him be worth it? Like, if you think about it in terms of an equation, do I benefit from just choosing him over everything else? And then another question is, what really is he promising anyway? If this is all good, if it's eternally good, what is he really offering? Those are the tensions that I believe Hosea answers in these pages. And so uh, let me pray really quick one more time. Pray to dive into the word for the Holy Spirit to uh, bring us clarity and uh, for him to illuminate what he's been saying to us all along in the pages of Hosea. 
So uh, pray with me one more time. Lord, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak life into your words for us today. I pray that you would open up our eyes, give us these moments of clarity that we talked about last week for us to be able to look in the mirror and really see what we carry, really see where we choose other lovers, really see where we pers- we're pursuing idols instead of what you have for us. Lord, uh, help us to really see what it's like to, to follow you and why it's better. Why should I turn my back on everything else and say yes to you? Holy Spirit, uh, only you can do the work in our souls that really matter, and so I pray that you would guide us in that. And so I pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So here, this is God's work. This is what God is teaching us through the pages of Hosea, specifically through what we read in chapter 2, is that when God sees it fit to stand up in our lives and to bring seasons where he challenges our idols, right, because God is with us all the time. He's with us even in the seasons that we call really bad, and he's in the seasons that we call really good. He's, in, he's with us all throughout, always wanting to free us from our idols, from our other lovers. He always wants the good for us. Uh, one of God's attributes is that he is perfect in his veracity, which means that he never lies. He always gives us the full truth because he can only ever do that. His veracity requires that he always speak truth into our lives. And so in the seasons where God is standing up and saying, it's time for me to deal with this part of your life, what is he doing? And in these pages, we see that when God stands up to our other lovers, he's putting us in a wilderness. That's point number one. Uh, Today, we are going to do some balancing between the metaphor of Hosea, the imagery of their marriage, and then going into specifically what God is saying to Israel in this time. Because God is offering them just not like this lovey-bubby for the rest of time commentary, but he's speaking exactly to what Israel was doing in this time as well. And today we're going to find that balance and we're going to start to transition from talking about lovers to talking about idols to talking about other places where we look for, God, for meaning for all of these things. And so let's start to get comfortable with a better picture of what an idol really is. And to do that, I want to read from a quote from Tim Keller. Uh, In his book, Counterfeit God, he writes this. He says, the Bible sometimes speaks of idols uh, using a a marital metaphor. God uh, God should be our true spouse, but when we desire and delight in other things more than God, we commit spiritual adultery. Romance or success can become false lovers that promise to make us feel loved and valued. Idols capture our imagination and we can locate them by looking at our daydreams. What do we enjoy imagining? What are our fondest dreams? We look at our idols to love us, to provide us with value and a sense of beauty, significance, and worth. Really, that's what an idol is. It's a pursuit of something, or it's a, a, a something, or it's another person, or it's our imaginations of all of these things, and we're looking for all of these things that really matter that God really provides, but we're looking for it in all the wrong places. And any place that is less than him is an idol, right? Anything that gives us significance, identity, purpose, safety, commitment, all of these things, if we look for them, truly look for them and store it in our hearts in other places, that is an idol. 
And what God is starting to say in Hosea and in this season of Israel's history is that uh, our idols are false lovers. They're lovers that don't ever love us in return. Our things that require our allegiance and our commitment and our time and our pursuit and our affection, but that will never give any of those things back to us. Our idols are things that require so much of us and in the end always turn on us and kill us, but it will never truly love us the way it promises to. It'll never give us any of the meaning or significance that it tells us we would. We're choosing, uh, uh, I thought of a word I, I don't want to use, uh, bad lovers, like lovers that are way, like, oh gosh, that threw me. Uh, lovers that are, don't actually love us, let's just leave it there. These things that will never give us the good thing, the better things that God promises us. And in chapter, in this chapter, in verses two to five, he like starts to speak like that. And this is some of the harshest language we see in Hosea. I don't want us to skip over this. I don't want us to play games around this. I don't want us to put a bow on these words because they should really shock us and get our attentions that the same God who writes this in Hosea also is the Christ, who, the God who died on the cross for us in Jesus. It's the same one. He has not changed. He's forever, he's forever the same. And it, his heart, his husband's heart, his long-suffering heart, shines through the chapter 2 when he says, plead for your mother, verse 2, she is not my wife and I am not her husband, uh, that she put away her whoring from her face and from her breast, lest I strip her naked and make her the day she was born. I'm going to make her into a wilderness, he says, a parched land, and I'll kill her with thirst. Like, oh, that is not meant for us to just look over. Imagine, the, well, you don't have to imagine. Read these words, the passion that God burns for us against evil, against our false lovers. What really what these verses are saying here is, you know what, when we chase after these lovers, we're exposing ourselves. God's saying that we are exposing ourselves when we're looking for these in all the wrong places. The, uh, the adultery was already in her breast, it says here. She was already naked. Later on, he says he's going to take off the clothes that really cover her nakedness because it was God is the one, the only one in this equation who's protecting us. And he's saying, you know what, if you really want this, then I'm going to turn you into this wilderness. I'm going to make you feel and see and experience the life that you're getting from these lovers, which is absolutely nothing. I'm going to do these things. I'm going to let you have what you want for a season, and you're going to see that it gives you nothing, no life, no benefit, no value. When we run and find these other lovers, it could be exciting. It could be fun. There's a reason why we go back over and over and over again. But it never gives us life. Our idols never give us what God can give us, which is all the good things. He's going to strip us naked. He's going to show us what we're really doing. These are words that we can't just overlook. We expose ourselves, and when God stands up to actually do something, he lets us see what we're really doing to ourselves, choosing all of the worst lovers who don't care for us at all. And really what we're doing when we're looking for love with our idols, uh, we're saying what verse 5 says. Verse 5 says, I will go after my lovers 
who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Right? That's what we really think is happening here. We forget that God is the one who gives us all of these things, and we think it comes from these lovers that don't actually love us. Like we really think that we get the things that really matter from all of these false things. And so God says, you know what, when it's time to stand, and hard se- not all hard seasons in your lives are him standing, but when he stands up against our idols, he makes us into a wilderness so that we can see what we're really doing to ourselves. And then he goes on and he picks it up and he says that he will bring us some hedges and some walls. Right? Some verses from verses 16 to 13, he says, Therefore I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers but not overtake them. She shall seek them but not find them. He's like, I'm going to put walls around you. I'm going to hold you down for a second. I'm going to build these walls so that when you are truly thirsty, so that when you are truly barren, so that when you truly can't find the things, the pleasure that you used to out of your lovers, I'm going to build these walls and you won't be able to find them. When I moved to Chicago back in the day, I had a lot of rules and parameters over my life in that season, and what all, the like, whole purpose of what those, th- what those things did for me was it tied me to this one place with this one group of people, and I couldn't run to all of my other idols, to all of my other lovers who I thought I got something from. And when I couldn't run to my old comforts, when I couldn't run to the things that were actually killing me, and I knew that, but I went to them anyway, I, like, could, I, I was trapped, and I, could, I had no more answers. And I got the, to the end of myself. And this is what God does in these seasons. He says, you know what? I won't let you find them. I won't let you go back to those lovers. Like God, God's the one protecting us here. He's the one who's like, I, I know what's good for you. And I know that these people don't actually love you. I know these things are only bringing you death. So let me build these hedges around you that will hurt, that you'll feel trapped in, that you'll feel lost in, that you will get really angry in, that you will think I've left you in, excuse me, but I'll do that because I'm showing you that they don't do anything for you, that they're not even, your lovers aren't even out there looking for you. They only ever care about using you and abusing you and giving you death. These, these walls of thorns, these hedges, seem like they really hurt. They keep us trapped, and we start to actually deal with what's going on inside, what's actually driving us to all these bad lovers in the first place. And so he keeps us from his lovers, and then he starts this process where he starts to take things away from us. It says, and she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oils, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Like, just imagine a God who gives us everything. Everything good in your life comes from him. And then we often take those things and we give them to all of our false gods, to all of our insecurities. We give all of the good things and we put them in the worst places. Right? Imagine a husband who is like just showers his wife with good things or a wife who showers her husband with good things. 
And then we take those things and we give them to other lovers. Should God's heart not burn with passion for love for us and for his righteousness to do what is right? Like, I, these words can be hard for us to hear. But I thank God that he's a God who feels this passion for us, who will tell us the truth when we are running to all the wrong places. I thank God that he's not a pushover, that he won't ever not yell, that he yells at me in the right times when I need to be yelled at. When I am like my son Ryan, and he's running around like crazy, but I need him to hear me, and I grab him by the shoulders, and you would, if you're looking at this kid, you would think that I'm torturing him. He feels so uncomfortable, but I'm just like, bud, stop, listen, I have to tell you something. Like, that's what God does in these seasons when he stands up to our idols, and he starts taking away things from Gomer, from us all the time. He takes away our grain and our wine and our oil and our wool and our flax, our parties and festivals, our vines and grapes, our fig trees, all of those representing a lot of things in our lives our necessities sometimes, our pleasures, our fun, our clothing, like all of these things that represent something in the story, our insecurities, the things that we hide, the things that we hide from one another, the things we use to hide from our pain, from all of these things, he takes them away. And those seasons really, really, let me say something theological here, they really suck. They're the worst seasons in our lives, but they are the most generous thing that a husband could do for his bride or for a wife can do for her husband in seasons where we just need clarity to overcome us. But the story doesn't end there because Hosea's story never ends there because God's story never ends there. It's not about the taking away, but it's about the freedom. Let me finish off reading Hosea chapter 2. Starting in verse 14, the word of the Lord says this. It says, Therefore, Behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make, her, and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer in the days of her youth as to the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of Baals from your mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and, the, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in the faithfulness, and you shall, be no, and you shall know the Lord. And in the days I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain and the wine and the oil, and they shall, be, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. Our lovers, our other lovers, don't love us. 
our other lovers don't bring us any life, any benefit. We're going to see specifically what God was talking about next week with Israel. Right? They were looking for safety in all the wrong places. So let me just say to us today that when we go for significance, for safety, for provision, for answers, for identity, all of these things and anyone other than the Lord himself, we are choosing other lovers. We're choosing lesser lovers. We're choosing things that don't care about you and that will always turn on you. We have this God here who comes after us. He brings us back to him with love. He speaks tenderly to us. The, it literally says there, he speaks love into our hearts, is what it says there. And he doesn't just take the good things from us to take to punish us, or right? that is part of it, but he gives them back to us at all the right times. He gives us the good thing back. And they're much better when we have them from his hand. He doesn't stop there. He restores us out of love, just like Hosea did for Gomer, just like Jesus has done for us. He just brings us back to life. He brings us everything that we ever need. He gives it back to us, but first he needed to take it away from us so we could actually see what we were doing, what was happening to us, to see that our other lovers don't love us at all. He promises to be our husband again in the face of all of our wandering of all of our infidelity, of all of our spitting in his face when he gives us good things and we take him to his enemy. He forgives us. He has mercy for us because his love always burns longer than his wrath. Because even though he is a wounded husband, he's a merciful Lord and he will always return to his mercy when he stands up and when he works with us. He will remove Baal from our mouths. He will remove every false god from our mouths. And we will remember his name no more. We will only remember the Lord. And we will actually say on our own accord, call him husband. That's the type of work that he promises to do in our hearts. He gives us a covenant that will last for all time. And he'll abolish violence and war and he'll give us safety. And we'll be betrothed to him forever the one who can perfectly love us and give us the one thing that no one else can, real life, a real future, real promise and real hope in the face of all of our suffering. And then he brings up the names of the kids one more time. He actually does this several times, and he has, we've seen it already, even in this chapter, he's brought up their names again. But this time, he makes it clear he's redeeming all of his judgments. He's not removing them. As we're going to see next week, there is this period of judgment that comes on, but that's not our final destination. He says to Jezreel, which means God sows, that he will sow us back to him. He will cultivate us back to him. That's why the image for this sermon series is that olive tree. That's the graphic we're using, because he promises that in the face of all of this suffering, he'll sow us back to him. He'll bring us to new life. We are not Jezreel because he is not going to destroy everything he's set up with us. He speaks to no mercy, and he says, don't worry, you will not be no mercy. I have mercy for you. My mercy never runs dry. When we find no mercy in our lives, it might be because the Lord is actually doing something. He's standing up to our other lovers. So let's partner with him when we find no mercy, because he's doing something. Ask us these questions. 
And he also says to not my people, you are my people, you are going to be my people, and we will say, you are my God in return. And be able to say that with our whole being and never wander again. And so, for us, what's the invitation in all this? And the worship team, uh, Ro, you can come up. The worship team, singular, can come up. God is this husband who loves his church, who loves his people, who is always calling all people into this marriage relationship with him. We preached on this a couple of weeks ago, all about how what Jesus did for us in his life mirrored how a man married a woman in his day. His, like, his purposes and his mission on this earth was to make sure that everyone knew that we could be married to him, that we had this home in heaven that would be the place where we live with our husband. And so our invitation for us today is to examine your life. Let the Holy Spirit look into your heart and in the way that you live, the decisions that you make and say, where do I have these false lovers? Where am I going to all these things that actually hate me and are killing me, but I keep going back because I'm weak or I'm scared or I'm hurt or I just, it's easier. Where in your life do you have these lovers who don't love you back? who are only sowing death and destruction in your life. God is the one who will give you this home and you'll never want to leave it again. We won't live in there fully until we see him face to face, but the process begins today of letting the Holy Spirit examine us and stand up to our other lovers. Our invitation is to let him do that today and in this season so that in every season, we're getting rid of our lovers. We're not going back to our filth as much as we used to. But we're letting him strip away, build these walls, put these thorns for the purposes of us experiencing our faithful husband, our one true lover, the one who loves us perfectly. And then the dream is that through all, that when God stands up, what is being produced in those difficult seasons, in hearing difficult words from the one who loves us, is that he's taking away these lovers. In my life and in my soul, in ours as a church, in the church, capital C, that we are, he is making us the bride that he promises to make us into. A, a bride that has no more blemishes because of what he can do for us, not what we can do for ourselves. And so that's the invitation. This week, let the Holy Spirit pray intentionally, sit down, give him time, and say, Lord, where are my other lovers? And confront them with me. Help me to do this, because I can't do this on my own. And the dream is that he's actually doing that for the church, getting us ready for the marriage supper of the Lamb, when he comes back and brings us home. And so let's worship this God who gives us the only home we actually should want to live in. The uh, promise that is not too good to be true, but eternally perfect and kept for us in heaven. And um, then we'll come up and we'll pray again and we'll go. Um, read the sermon notes. They will help you examine yourself, give the Holy Spirit time and room to 
show you yourself and give you that moment of clarity that uh, we all need. Um, so let's worship. Let's stand together.